Welcome back to Technical Roundup. We have another podcasty interview episode for you today. We're joined by Avi Fellman, who is the head of trading at Block Tower. I hope I pronounced your name and your company name in the correct. Oh, uh, you correct nailed way. it. That'd be a rough start to the pod, wouldn't it? It's like wrong guest, wrong company. Just you know, go go back yeah. to square one. But yeah, Avi <laughs> kindly volunteered his time to talk to us about crypto trading and other stuff, which won't land him in hot water with his um council which is good and yeah how are you doing thanks for joining us man i'm doing great it's a beautiful day uh yeah thanks for having me on guys really appreciate it thanks for thanks for making the time duck how are things in in the pond i suppose good good doing excellent <laughs> weather's good everything's good <laughs> i feel like i'm the one getting rug pulled on the weather side of things it's absolutely hideous right now uh, in, in in the united kingdom so um, inequality persists nonetheless. Uh, I don't know if you've listened to previous episodes, uh, but we try to always put some sort of interesting spin on the introduction of our mm -hmm. guests. Um, and we also should, before we do that, introduce our sponsor, which is Blockfolio. Visit blockfolio.com, blockfolio.trade for all your mobile trading needs. Uh, but we will be discussing non-mobile trading as well. Um, and so when it comes to introducing our guests, we always add some sort of spin, as I mentioned, where instead of just a 10, 15 minute like CV, we, we like to throw a curveball and to see where it lands. So for you, the one I came up with is, is there a trade that lives rent free in your head? So be it positive, negative, missed opportunity, or just something that you go back to um, from time to time, even though it's in the past. So for me, for example, uh, I had a really high conviction idea to buy ETH above 400 and target like 800, 1000, etc. for some sort of mega swing, like with leverage, you know, the full, um, you know, the full shebang. And instead, the breakout that I actually bought was the one that preceded like that 40% <laughs> wipe candle to the downside. So I was like, oh, shit, well, this idea is toast. And then obviously, what happened was the market crept back up, got back above that level. And that was the uh, crazy kind of ETH BTC bull market. So that slightly lives rent free in my head, uh, at least on the negative side of things. I was wondering if uh, you have anything um, that doesn't pay you rent on the trading side of things. Oh man, there's so many. I don't even know which one to pick. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go. With, I'll go with the most recent one, uh, which was if you remember before alt had like that crazy boom uh, in early 2021. That there was like crazy capitulation day where they all were down like 50 percent. And I had set a bunch of a bunch of limit orders trying to catch that. And I only got filled on like 10% of them. And I was like, all right, I'm not going to chase this. I'm going to let it come back to me. There's normally a nice little retracement. And then it was just completely off to the races after that. I mean, sushi, it was trading at like $2 and you waited a couple days and it was already at four. <laughs> and then, uh, that was get, getting filled on all those alts was, uh, was, was kind of like the mistrade of, the, of that month, unfortunately. I ended up chasing and getting in, getting like the middle of it, but... Man, that that the, those kind of those kind of capitulations where you're like, oh, I think I'll get another chance to like buy back in. Yeah, that those are those are definitely rent free in my head. Oh, I, I remember that one. I, it's so brutal when you get filled like a tiny bit, but not enough, and you're like, ah, oh, should I should I buy more? Should I just wait? I, I know the feeling. Was Dogecoin the one yeah. for you, Doug? Oh, uh, <laughs> don't don't remind me. Yeah, Dogecoin was the worst one in like years basically like i was saying dogecoin 15 sats if you get it 
Um, that's going to be very, very good for a cycle kind of play. And then mm -hmm. I prepared myself to buy it. I have my orders there and it just never filled. Like I was just sitting there on the book and it just like it dipped tiny bit into me, but just like a tiny, tiny bit and then uh, took off. And then I was like, ah, I'm not going to chase it. I'm going to see if I can buy higher. And then I did the same thing, put a, put limits there and, and then it started dipping into them and never, never filled more than even like 10% and then just took off on its monster run. So, oh man, yeah, you um, absolutely rubbed you on that. Yeah. <laughs> even yeah. the market generally, it feels like I, it's almost like the curse of Elon has spread to Bitcoin uh, in, in its current form, right? We've got the Tesla accepting um, Bitcoin payments news and the market just kind of shrugs it off after a small rally. A lot of people have kind of switched full 180 from, oh, look, Elon Musk is evangelizing Bitcoin crypto, etc. And then seeing him, you know, talk about Dogecoin and that just dampened the effect of any preceding price action then he was like replying to bitcoin cash stuff now he's tweeting about DeFi. i think there's some i called the elon fatigue like a month ago coming into the market i'm yeah. certainly feeling it i don't know if you are no 100 percent. i mean you see just like you see it in price right every time elon's tweeted about bitcoin except for the one time that tesla announced that they had actually bought bitcoin the move just gets retraced and i think it's because everybody tries to just pound pound derivatives on that and then they all just get liquidated when it starts turning against them i love elon amazing guy great ceo i'm worried that one day he's going to tweet bitcoin is too high and we're going to have like a negative 30 percent day <laughs> he did it to tesla so dangerous guy to have in the market with us but definitely a good proponent as well yeah, like a decent net ally to have on the crypto side of things if you can stomach the, the volatility as social media brings. It often tends to be on like yeah, a Friday exactly. or something as well. So you just know this guy's bored and just uh, having fun with us. Um, yeah, yeah. living on the East Coast, I'll wake up in the morning and he'll have tweeted something at 3 a.m. And I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> <laughs> what do I have to deal with today? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's an interesting point about kind of waking up and catching up. So we obviously talk to a, a different kind of different groups of traders, investors who view the market in different terms. So just to give our audience some context, so let's say you wake up and you get to your trading station, whatever it may be. How do you view the market at a glance, right? Kind of what do you have in front of you to give you some context as to where we are, what you should or shouldn't be looking for, kind of the, the whole overview um, zoomed out picture? What tools or not uh, do you use to get that type of bird's eye view? So it's a great question. So that's actually something that, you know, I've personally just spent a lot of time trying to perfect is how do I get the view of the market as quickly as possible that I need? And we've built, I mean, we've built internal tools to kind of help us get there. But I think you can basically replicate everything we have internally just using four websites. You log on to BYBT, you check funding rates, you check liquidations, you check open interest, you log on to Coinalize, which is another website. You see how open interest has reacted overnight. You see how it looks across a lot of different, all the different futures, BTC, ETH, altcoins. You check, then you go to Coindesk, you check big headlines. I'll go to my Telegram groups. I'll see if there are any chats that have like a thousand messages in them. And then I know I should probably read something. And hopefully it's not just posting. But <laughs> <laughs> then after that, uh, I'll normally go to skew, which gives me kind of like a higher level view of things where I check, <clears throat> I check basically, okay, well, did any large options trades go through? Did any, did any of the open interest on strikes change a lot? Um, 
like what does futures basis look like, all, all that kind of stuff. And then I have these screeners that are just like, okay, these are the top performers today. These are the bottom performers. Um, yeah, it's, but I, I think, I think it's just a, a pretty quick now manual rote process of these are all the things that I check to make sure I understand what's happening in the markets because I'm primarily a large cap directional trader. Um, so that's the kind of derivatives information is extremely, extremely useful for me and news is extremely useful for me. So that's the way that I generally approach the markets is, is looking at looking at all that kind of stuff. How long does that take? that morning overview type of process at this point it must be quite efficient right yeah it's super efficient and one thing that i'll say that's just absolutely helped my trading and just my life in general is i'll, I'll write a little market note for myself every single morning and it has the same format and it has all of these like areas of data to fill in that i'll just like i'll fill out and so that's probably a 30 minute process at this point where it's like all right i'm going to check all the data i'm going to write it down I'm going to make my you know, initial first glance analysis of the market, and then I'm going to start hunting for trades. Do you compare your notes to the ones that you've like done previously? Like, let's say you wake up, you're like, okay, I, I, this kind of feels familiar. I want to look back. Like, do you go back through the notes, or do you just write it down? Sometimes they'll go back through the notes. I've seen a lot of people have a ton of success writing emotional journals when it comes to trading. Um, and also like basically taking screenshots and writing down common patterns that occur. I don't necessarily do that. I kind of just look at the data, but I, I will look back every now and then and just compare to see if things look, if things look similar. So for example, if we have a large sell-off and I look at, you know, what futures did in reaction to that large sell-off, I'll go back in my notes and I'll check what happened on the previous sell-off of similar size and what the resolution of that was in the, over the next like five to 10 days and then figure out, okay, does this look similar enough and does it have the similar type of market participant for me to expect a similar outcome? So I'll do that definitely. Um, but I've, I've seen a lot, I've seen a lot of people have success with like, oh, okay, this is how I felt at this moment in the market. And then I'm going like, to trade the same way that I did last time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, just going back to procedure on that very briefly. So you clearly go through the data that you deem relevant for your style of trading. But then when it comes to trade identification, execution, or the inferences that you make from that data, is that primarily kind of manual and discretionary? Or is there some magic black box that spits something out at you for you to fiddle with? There. So the way that I have basically constructed the trading is it's a little bit of both, right? So we have all sorts of different scenarios that ingest data and spit out like expected future returns based on, okay, this, this has happened in the market. What happened the last time this happened? And we'll do that in a quantitative numerical way. So we don't trade and I don't trade using algorithms, but I do use quantitative analysis to sort of inform my trading. And I probably trade a little bit more differently than some people where I don't often set, you know, a stop, a target, an entry. It's okay, well, what do I think like the next 10 to 15% move is in Bitcoin based on these statistics? How should I be positioning the portfolio? What do I think alts are gonna do over the next, you know, one week to two weeks? And a lot of that is because the size that we trade just like is not conducive 
to taking shorter term positions. So I have to find these longer term, these longer term setups and sort of think about it in percent moves as opposed to, as opposed to anything else. So yeah, the, I, I don't normally like construct a trade that way, like unless I'm trading Bitcoin, Bitcoin and ETH are basically the only ones that I construct a trade where I'm like, okay, this is my stop. This is my entry. This is my exit. Has this in any way changed since like we've seen the institutions come in, like in the last few weeks to months, would you say there's, there's a difference in how the market trades and how you trade or has it largely stayed the same? Yeah, I'd say that there's actually a pretty, I mean, like the institutions, first of all, they like, they sent Bitcoin. They just absolutely sent it, which was very nice, which didn't, didn't require a lot of trading on my part. I basically, you know, you can just like park in one position, which is just long BTC and long things that I think are going to outperform BTC until I, until you think that the institutions, you know, have kind of exhausted their buying temporarily. So the way that I've been trading recently is basically ride the wave when you see these institutions coming into the market and they're spot buying. And when you see that spot buying dry up, reduce your risk aggressively. And I never personally go net short. I'm way, I'm too scared to do that. It doesn't make sense in an asset this this convex unless you have like an extreme like intense scenario, maybe like a March 12th where you can kind of like see ahead of that. But what I'm doing is basically getting longer into situations where there's a ton of spot support from these institutions and then reducing risk when I see that spot support dry up, right? So a great example of this was the rally up to 62K recently. All you had to do was look at the Coinbase Binance Premium and monitor the Gemini Binance Premium. Just, and what you realized is that it was Binance buying all of that. So everything over 57K to 62K was just Binance pushing it. And from my perspective, there just isn't enough capital coming in right now from that crypto native area of the world to sustain prices that high. And because Coinbase wasn't buying, it's like, okay, this is a good area to reduce risk, right? This is, this is a good area to say, I don't think that there's enough capital to sustain these prices because the type of buyer that you need to see in order to sustain those prices just isn't there. And those are your large, large ticket individuals that are coming in from the institutional side. So let's just reduce risk here. Let's, 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 you know, take, take some chips off the table and, and re-enter the market when, when I see that, when I see that spot bid. The one thing that I'll say is that the entry of macro funds and institutions, I think has this coloring effect right now on Bitcoin where you're not going to get these like crazy 100% rallies, 40% pullbacks like you were getting in 2017, because what these guys are doing is, and they ha they trade large size, is Bitcoin will be up 50%, they'll take profits, Bitcoin will come down 25%, they'll plow those back in. And they're kind of coloring the price action of Bitcoin and dampening the volatility in a sense. Like in, in this bull market, I would have expected vol to be a ton higher, but it's not. And I think it's because of that specific type of market participant. Oh, that's interesting. Do you think in general um, that the buying has been America centric as in the institutions on the American side and not on, on the global side? Because if you think about it, right, we, we're all looking at Coinbase. We're not looking at any other exchanges really, or like we are, but like the main buying has been happening in Coinbase. Do you think that's because it's all American or do you just think that's the best way to go um, to just kind of buy Bitcoin? For I, think, I think these guys have Coinbase definitely has just a fantastic institutional program in general, and they can onboard people, you know, from from a bunch of different countries. So I, I think that it's mainly Coinbase just because they have those relationships and they're the exchange 
that's pursuing that the most aggressively, right? I mean, you have all these other exchanges out there. They're not building out their institutional arms specifically to bring in institutions to plow capital into, into crypto. Coinbase is doing that. Gemini is doing that. Bitstamp is doing that. Finance just isn't doing that as much. And OKEx and Huawei, they're just not, they're not focusing their energy on bringing institutions into the market where that's like, seems like 80% of the energy that Coinbase expends is bringing these guys into the market, right? Um, from, from an outsider's perspective. So I think it's less about only American institutions are buying, although I think that American institutions are buying a lot and they're buying the majority. And it, it's clear, actually, it's kind of interesting. So like chain analysis data says that there is this flow from the, from the East to the West currently, and that the West is accumulating Bitcoin and the East is net selling Bitcoin. And you can also see that on exchange. So I think that there is accumulation from the West and it is mostly American buyers, but I also think it's Coinbase because just of the business perspective, right? These are the guys that are actively pursuing the institutions. What do you think? I mean, you mentioned on-chain there uh, and it, it's become quite popular in the discourse to look at on-chain analysis. Like Willy Woo is like mega popular. Um, crypto Quant uh, as well. You know, a lot of people sign up to that and follow the notifications. Like Coinbase Whales doing this and outflows from Coinbase as well. Stable coin deposits, etc., etc. It all still seems quite new and kind of reasonably experimental to me. And part of me is yeah. also somewhat skeptical that bigger players, uh, at least indefinitely, would be willing to choreograph their moves, such as almost any indicator suite almost could pick it up. What's your current take on the evolution or maybe even predictive power of on-chain analysis in its current form? Do you give it a lot of weight? Uh, not not at all. And I'm sure these guys are way smarter than me and they can figure out how to use it. But for all intents and purposes, I have not figured out how to use on-chain data profitably to trade. I think that like, it's, <laughs> it's, kind of a, it's kind of a psyop for the most part. So many people are moving around Bitcoin and, and alts and they're doing it explicitly for the purpose of scaring people. I mean, think about it. If you hold, let's say you hold 50 million bucks of sushi in your wallet and you think to yourself, oh, I can trigger a 5% sell-off purely by moving this to Binance. People are doing that, right? And it's not very often because there are not that many people that have that amount of an alt and are willing to just like play that game. But there are some people that play that game, right? And they'll take advantage of it. So I think a lot of on-chain movement is just massive, massive psyop. I think that the highest, like the highest hit rate on-chain uh, trading strategy that you can kind of generate is probably through Nansen, where you're just like tracking wallets, you're tagging wallets, you're saying, oh, this guy, this guy's a sick small cap gem hunter, and he's really, really, really good at buying the next thing that's going to 5x, and I'm just going to copy trade him. Or you're looking at large wallets accumulating something before they announce that they've accumulated it. Um, so that's, I think... That's a way to play on-chain metrics, but when I'm talking about the crypto quant kind of stuff on a day-to-day -day trading, super difficult to use profitably, in my opinion. I think it's kind of a meme, honestly. It's like the, the, the crypto quant stuff. It's like the I'm like 99% sure it was just people panic selling on the news, right? And it wasn't actually it didn't actually have anything to do with the transfer. Like the transfer that sent us down from 58k last time. That, that turned out to be like a BlockFi transfer to Gemini. And so it was just the market was super levered and everybody was like, oh, no, 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 like a, a billion dollars is going to hit the market. Got to get out. And obviously the billion dollars didn't sell, but there was a liquidation cascade because everybody started panicking and getting out. Yeah. Right? I, 
we have a bunch of this stuff happening, right? Do you remember the on-chain short kind of stories that we had with Link and that we had with a bunch of other coins? Where it's like, yeah, a bunch of, of on-chain and on-chain. Um, what was called uh, the... Yeah, we had... Oh, yeah, we had on-chain short, yeah. Uh, and um, then people just kind of started rushing in and causing it to squeeze. And... Um, we had that kind of repu like repeated time and time again, and um, it kind of started getting less and less of a move until it just kind of completely disappeared. Do you remember that story? Yeah, uh, the, the Zeus Capital stuff. I had no idea if that was real or not. If he ha did, he have a short position. Was he just super long? Was he like gig along and baiting the market to liquidate him? I have no idea. Yeah, it's I just psyops, right? I mean, that's yeah. what I figured anyway. Like, it makes sense to kind of push people to where you want them to be. And um, at some point, people just caught on, I think. And that's why it's stopping, like, stopped working. But I kind of yeah. agree with your point that it's mostly a meme. Like, I haven't, I haven't figured out a way to use it. I, I mean, admittedly, I've not looked into it as much just because it doesn't make much sense to me. Um, because, like Craig said earlier, like, if you want to telegraph everything that you're doing, um, yeah, you're gonna find a way around it, right? You're not gonna do that forever. Like if you if you notice, okay, people are leeching off of me doing something, and I'm getting more inefficient because of it. I mean, why would you keep keep on doing it, right? There's other ways to do it. Yeah, yeah. makes sense. I think there's like a built-in contradiction to some extent, where I think the reasonable use cases probably are on the longer-term stuff, like outflow, even even the Coinbase outflows and stuff. But like Bitcoin available on exchange uh, was a pretty good one early on when we started breaking out, like. 12 14k from that point onwards i think there's arguably some mid to long term merit there but of course the contradiction is most people are using it for like super short term day trading speculation like oh my god a big transfer i should sell everything uh, I, I just yeah I, i'm not totally convinced i mean i'm somewhat cynical so i was like look if you're kind of shit at trading uh, without this on-chain suite analytics whatever it's probably not going to be your saving grace uh, and isn't going to turn your trading on its head especially in the short term, in my opinion. Um, you mentioned yeah, that. definitely not definitely not a short-term thing. I, I, I do think that there is some edge in it long-term, just from like, mm -hmm. if, if you're thinking about Bitcoin from a long-term perspective, like let's say you're allocating to Bitcoin and you're like, oh, when should I be allocating to Bitcoin? Early 2020, when you saw Bitcoin on an exchange was rising, maybe you can use that to think to yourself, I'm going to wait until we're in a downtrend until people are actually accumulating Bitcoin and not moving it just to trade. And so maybe that would have saved you some money because the downtrend started after March. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't personally do that. This is kind of just hindsight talking, but I think that there is some value to, to, to long-term on-chain metrics. And I think Willie Wu does a good job of that. But yeah, definitely the short-term stuff like the, 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 the crypto quant alerts, I think are, they, they, they run a great service. They're a great data provider, but like selling on large transfers, I think is a, is, is usually a mistake. Yeah, that's That seems reasonable. Um, one of the, you know, we talked about data points uh, a fair bit and we were discussing this with some other guests as well, but Bitcoin market structure, I mean, the coloring you mentioned plays into this, but it just feels and practically is so different uh, from the past. So you'll remember, I'm sure, the BitMEX glory days, right? Where everyone was like long their longs while being long their collateral, just just like this this pyramid, this Jenga tower of long positions. So like you you, you poke you poke price to the downside and obviously because of 
convexity, you know, your collateral goes, the value of your collateral goes down the price as your position goes down as well. I mean, it, it, it turns into a massive liquidation cascading mess. Uh, and in hindsight, it doesn't really make a ton of sense being um, long Bitcoin denominated invest futures all the time. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of what we dealt with. And the price action that came about from that was those crazy just like staircase up and then one or two candles retrace the whole thing. Um, you, you identified coloring as potentially one of the uh, explanations for slightly more muted price action or volatility. Do you have uh, other insights on the larger side of things as to how Bitcoin is traded as to why we've maybe moved away um, from those extremes to some extent? Although obviously in notional terms, liquidations are still massive. Yeah, I think a lot of it you can just back out from the fact that during the BitMEX glory days, like the if you took the amount of, of open interest like and you divided it by the total market cap of Bitcoin, it was a lot higher than it is now. So looking at total leverage in the system, it was way, way, way higher prior to this run than it is now. Open interest actually hasn't really kept up that much. And we're looking at like, you know, 1.5% of total market cap of Bitcoin is representing open interest right now. And that's kind of okay. It's not crazy. So you're not going to get these like ridiculous, ridiculous liquidation moves as much. I mean, obviously you're going to get them like that time that we moved from 55 to 48 because the market was just like crazy levered and we liquidated $4 billion, but it's not going to be as, as common on the low time frame because you're not going to be able to like the, the amount of people that are getting liquidated on the low time frame, that amount of capital is no longer sufficient to move the market 2% or 3%, right? Versus in 2018, 2019, the amount of people that were getting liquidated on a low time frame, the amount of capital that was getting liquidated could move the market. And now it's just, they just don't have that much capital. Like the people that are going 100X levered, the, the notional amount of people that are doing that, the notional amount of people that are going 50X levered is just way lower compared to market cap, compared to cash on the system than it was prior. So you're just, yeah, it's just harder to get those moves, which I think is is reflected in, in price action. Like intraday, intraday vol is a lot nicer to deal with. And Bitcoin, in my opinion, actually just like, it trades a lot more cleanly because there's way less stop hunts. So I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with the, with the development here. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you if it impacted your trading or if you guys were like, you know, constantly buying buying liquidation stop funds and that <laughs> bad this bad for your strategy. I don't know, but uh, yeah. I definitely, definitely prefer it this way. I mean, I like the the other the older way just because yeah. that was most of my strategy, just buying on the cheap when everyone got liquidated and then just selling when the other side got liquidated. Um, but I mean, I don't mind it on like it just. It's it's more stress free, right? You you can just kind of go go about your day, and you're not in fear that the, the entire market is going to disappear overnight. So that's that's been nice. So I, on the trading side of things, I think there's there's less opportunities to just just kind of get get stuff very very cheaply. But um, yeah, on just on the living side of things, just having like at least a minute or two to yourself, definitely much better in my opinion. Do you think there's any kind of way that um, we can, like back back in the day, we all, always kind of pulled back off of liquidations, right? We started the pullback, a bunch of people got liquidated, and then we kind of walked down for a while, and then the opposite happened. Do you think if we pull back, it, it has to be um, on the fundamental side of things nowadays? Or do you think 
it's still the same still like let's say we top out at some point at 100k 150 do you still think that's gonna be like we're gonna top out on liquidations and then drop or do you think it's gonna be more more on the fundamental side of things where it's like okay we just slowly walk down and then find a new bottom at some point it's a really good question and honestly it's hard to it's it's hard to answer because I expected there to be more volatility during this run. Like I expected there to be, you know, crazy blow-offs. I expected there to be just a ton of a ton of action. And I expected retail to kind of come in the market and absolutely just, you know, ape in the same way that they were doing in 2017. And that hasn't really happened. Like if you look at if you look around, the vast majority of price action is just driven by large patient buyers. And the fact is that retail did come in, but it's not the same kind of like crazy market cultural moment where everybody's talking crypto where everybody's in the crypto the same way that it was in 2017. And so to expect a blow off, like the 10 K to 20 K massive pullback, massive bounce, and then we're done. It's a little bit harder to say that yet that's going to be what happens now because if it didn't if retail didn't come in and there aren't there isn't that type of market participant that came in on the move from 10 to 50 i'm not supremely confident that the move from 50 to 150k if we get it will bring in those people i don't know maybe it will maybe it won't but you can kind of see from the price action now right the fact that we topped out at 62k right now we're trading you know 20 20% lower or so from there and it was it wasn't a blow off it was this is a very muted move i think it shows you what it could look like when bitcoin actually tops in the future is you have all of these market participants you basically have large funds like us that are crypto native that are active traders you have institutions like corporate treasuries that are allocating you have institutions like pensions and endowments that are allocating for the long term that are strong handed buyers that likely aren't going to sell. And then you have these large macro funds that are now swinging around size. So like your Paul Tudor Jones probably has, you know, over you know a couple billion in Bitcoin, who knows, who are willing to swing size and are willing to take profit and are willing to buy back in and are willing to trade this thing. So I think what you'll see is similar to the way that this move played out. You'll see people just start to take profits and it'll happen slowly and people will start to realize that there's a lack of a spot bid. And there, people are just going to work out of positions. And at some point, what's going to happen is instead of value buyers like institutions and pensions coming in and buying at the 50K level like they were buying recently, they're just not going to be there. And so you're going to have profit taking that's slowly going to roll into more profit taking that's slowly going to roll into no more spot bid. So I think if I were to guess, I'd say like 70% chance we get a rounded top where it's slow roll off of profit taking and then an absolute crash versus a 30% chance of a blow off where it's like mania, 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 100% candle, 50% candle down, and then we're done. So I, I would bet more so on the slow roll off than, than the blow off at this point. Although this is all just like massive speculation, which is why I'm assigning probabilities to it, right? Like one in three chance, I'm just absolutely wrong here. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and it makes But that's sense. just like from, from what I see, that's the market. Market. Yeah. 
Yeah, precisely, right? You, you expect different types of behavior from different participants. But it does beg the question to some extent, why do you think uh, crypto kind of lost the financial culture wars so far when it comes to retail participation, right? It's kind of more on the GameStop side of things, Wall Street bets, etc., uh, while kind of the altcoins... Bitcoin, um, I mean, NFTs may be picking up some steam, but DeFi didn't really kick off with the normies. Uh, it seems like um, on the crypto side of things, we've almost been sidelined from the mainstream retail participation, or at least it's nowhere where we'd maybe like it to be, right? It's all games, GameStop, Wall Street bets, etc. cetera. Um, my, my argument was that, uh, I mean, Bitcoin price, just a bit too high. Uh, the unit size bias may be playing uh, a big role there. Uh, DeFi, just too hard to use, inaccessible. Um, and maybe NFTs, to some extent, the, the, the saving grace in terms of accessibility. But even that's a bit frothy. And, you know, the kind of gateway to crypto mechanism isn't entirely clear. Um, what do you think it'll take for retail to um, take an interest? Because this is kind of a weird version of events, right? Where the institutions get in first and then uh, I mean, it, it, basically entirely contrary to 2017, where retail's almost lost the boat. Yeah, it's so weird to me that, yeah, 2017 was just retail front-running institutions. Now it's institutions maybe front-running retail. Who knows if they <laughs> if they get in? I think that it's it, a lot of it is that people are kind of already allocated to Bitcoin from the from the retail side. Like a lot of a lot of Americans are already holding small amounts small amounts of Bitcoin. And realistically, this thing trades more sanely than GameStop trades. GameStop is like this crazy, crazy casino. The equities markets over the, like right after March, were trading way more wildly than Bitcoin was. I mean, things were, things were doubling and tripling all over the place. And you could play options on them. So, you know, you'd, you'd, 10X, and, you'd 10x in a week and then you'd go to zero the next day. And that sort of market action i think was really attractive to people and it was more attractive than the crypto market which is a harder to access b harder to you know punt options on which people absolutely love doing on you know the wall street bets kind of guys and then it's also just harder to really grasp the value of it so i think you need to put in some work to understand understand bitcoin whereas with the equities it's like yeah everybody just has this baseline of understanding of like yeah it's a company like i'm just gonna pump this thing like yeah, it throws off cash. Like that, I get the value, and I'm just going to bet on it because I can construct this crazy narrative in my head of like, you know, maybe it'll go up in the future, and it doesn't have zero fundamental value. Whereas Bitcoin, that some people said, is yeah, I don't know. Like maybe it has zero fundamental value. So it's just I think it's a lot harder for people to just to play around with Bitcoin than just to play around with equities at this moment in time. I think what you're seeing though is there. There's this like the subcurrent, which I'm not really in tune with but for whatever reason my retail friends that have got in the market they are in tune with and they know infinitely more about this than i do there's this whole undercurrent of these crazy uniswap alts that are like they, that we've never heard of honestly that people are just punting back and forth and these things are you know going they're they're not particularly big they're like 1 million to like 10 million dollar market cap that are going like 5x 10x and then they're dumping 70 percent, and people are getting rugged left and right. And there's a huge community that seems to be just like sucking these people in. And so I am seeing retail actually go in that direction. It's funny. One of my, one of, one of my buddies who just got into, who just got into crypto like six weeks ago, he's punting Uniswap shit coins. He's not trading on exchanges. Like he, he got in, he doesn't know anything about crypto six weeks ago. And suddenly 
now he's spending all of his time on like crypto moonshots, punting shit coins that I've never even heard of. And it's like, okay, like this is maybe this is where retail is going. Like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like they're not coming in and they're not, you know, leverage trading Bitcoin right now. They're, <laughs> they're doing this apparently. Um, yeah. Do you think in general with the, with them just punting the kind of like smaller old coins um, that, the bigger old coins have kind of fallen out of favor because they've really been been uh, suffering, right? I mean, if you look at Litecoin, if you look at um, XRP, if you look at a bunch of the bigger, older coins that have been hanging around for the last four or five years, um, they've all been doing pretty damn poorly. Do you think that's because like retail just isn't interested in something that isn't moving big? I think so. I also think it's just because these things are actually like fairly big now. I mean, in 2017, it didn't take a lot of money to move these to move these types of coins. And now it actually takes a substantial port, like a relative substantial portion of money to move Litecoin. I mean, it's trading at 200 bucks. Its market cap is fairly high. So like a dollar into Litecoin just doesn't move it as much as it as it did in 2017, obviously. And so you, you're just going to you're, you're just, you just don't have that amount of money flowing in. I mean, even if the exact same amount of money flowed in to Litecoin now as it did in 2017, it would still just not move as much because it's just much bigger, right? Than, than it was when I was trading at 20 bucks uh, yeah, prior. So, you know, you, you, you get these runs and I think a lot of it is just these, these coins are a bit too big for their britches where realistically, I think we can all agree that the, a lot of these coins are going to have likely zero value in 10 years. And so the amount of money that needs to flow into them is just too large for their actual real fundamental value. And speculators only have only have so much money to to plow to plow into these things and can only move them so much. So you know, Bitcoin's Bitcoin's a big asset now. Bitcoin's a trillion dollars, right? At current prices, it it's not it's not small. It's not we're not super 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 early to to Bitcoin anymore. The same way that in 2017 there was like very 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 clearly this wave that was coming that I think. People were just not understanding the true value of Bitcoin and priced at you know five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars. It was undervalued. At this point, I honestly think that Bitcoin is getting fairly close to true value. I don't know if that true value is you know four trillion, six trillion, if it's two trillion. But the upside is not nearly as much, and so I think that people kind of recognize that. And also, like the the market is just too big to really. To really whip around in like a crazy frenzy like it like it did prior i mean is bitcoin gonna go 20 30x from here like it did in 2017 i think it's it's like fairly unlikely from from my from my opinion that, that that it'll do that so i think it's just less less enticing for retail to come in and and play around with this thing whereas these uni these uni shit coins DeFi, all, all of this other stuff i think still has massive upside so if retail comes in i think that's that's very likely where they're where they're going to end up then um, another follow-up question to the to the Bitcoin side of things. Do you think um, we've we've heard uh, Sutsu talk about like the super cycle kind of thing, where this is the cycle to kind of the end of all like the biggest cycle that's gonna come? Do you think like do you subscribe to that at all? Like Bitcoin overtaking gold, or do you just think okay, no, it's getting close and uh, it's not gonna happen? <sighs> Uh, what do I say? Do I say something for engagement or do I say the truth? Uh, <laughs> truth is um, fine. <laughs> I think Sue is like this uh, a wonderful philosopher king and he's a fantastic trader. 
Uh, I'm just not like as Phil. I, I guess I can't really see as far in the future as, as him from. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I'd be surprised if Bitcoin overtakes gold. I would actually be, I, I would actually be pretty surprised. I think if it overtook gold this cycle, that would be like in the bottom 20% of all probabilities that I have in my head for where Bitcoin's going to end up. It's obviously any, any, anything's possible, but I think less than 20% chance that that happens this cycle. And I think less than 40% chance that that, that happens in, in perpetuity. I think that in, in my opinion, Bitcoin is likely to trade in relation to two things in the future. What we're going to do is we're probably going to hit some sort of fair value where all the people that have allocated are going to allocate and all the people that we're going to you know, take profits, all the OGs have taken profit. Maybe that's somewhere between 75 to 150K. Maybe it's maybe it's a little higher. And then after that, Bitcoin will trade in relation to real rates because most people that are buying Bitcoin right now are thinking about it as sort of an inflation hedge, real rates hedge. So it'll trade in relation to that and it'll change. Uh, it'll trade in relation to currency valuations kind of across the world and geopolitical risk. So anytime you see something like, you know, the Lira that just dumped 15%, Bitcoin will likely get a bid because of that, whether it's speculators buying it or whether it's people in that country buying it. So it'll trade off of those two things. And then if those two things, you know, really go out of whack, then I think we have the opportunity to surpass gold. Like if inflation really starts to hit around the world and geopolitical risk really ratchets up, I think that maybe we can we can catch up to gold because people will bet on Bitcoin as the fastest horse based on those two things. But Unless that happens, uh, it's it's very hard for me to see that in like the next call it three to five years that that it would overtake gold. But I think that's a good like mental framing for it is we're going to reach a fair value at some point during the cycle, and then we're going to start trading on real macro trends like real rates, and we're going to start trading on geopolitical risk. Oh, that's the first time that we've heard someone say that there there's capped upside in his mind <laughs> i like it though i was gonna say only in crypto could you have a target of like 75 to 150k and still be bearish in relative terms right <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i mean realistically for me right like i got into crypto early 2017 i'm not a crazy og or anything like that and i bought in because i looked at this thing and i was like hey I think that this is underpriced and I think that this could reasonably hit at the time I was thinking a trillion to $2 trillion market cap. And now we're here. And one thing that I try not to do in all of my trades is revise upside targets once I get there. So I'm trying my best to kind of like fight that urge. I've had this target for so long. It's like, okay, we're somewhere near fair value right now. I think that 50 K is definitely not the top 62 K is definitely not the top, but you know, I don't want to revise my upside target after having reached it after, you know, three years. That's a very dangerous way to trade in general. Yeah, we discussed, I think we discussed previously, at least Donald and I privately, like the worst traders tend to be those who move their targets up as the market goes up. And then if they want to buy a buy a dip, they just keep moving their, their kind of buy yeah. down as the market moves down as well. Uh, it's kind of almost a glorified form of chasing. But that's also procedurally very interesting, right? Now you have a target and one of, you know, one of the sins of trading, if you will, is amending it once you get there. Uh, for, for you know, for the sake of enriching our audience, uh, are there any other kind of replicable or transferable, um, almost decision trees that somebody could listen to and apply to their own trading from how you approach the market, how you trade Bitcoin, any other such um, you know heuristics that you use to to stay tight when trading, basically? Yeah, I think I'll I'll, I'll focus on one thing, which 
a lot of people, I think it, it, it's hard, it's hard to like really, really, really think that way until you've been trading a decent amount, but it's a concept of asymmetry in your trades and asymmetry is not setting a target that's two X your stop because that's not really like you're, you're kind of just like make, making up numbers here. You kind of, you, you have to, you have to think about, okay, well, what, what are the reasonable outcomes and probabilities of the trade that I'm taking? And I'll give you, I'll give you an example of this. It's we're trading, we're trading at 10 K and we're at 9,800 and you're bullish, but you realize that 10 K is a large, is a, is a large level. And it, you think that the bound here is if we fall, we might go to 9K. And if we break 10K, we'll really, really, we'll really, really rip. But 10K is a big resistance level. This is exactly what happened over summer. This is why we got bound in this range. So we're trading at 9,800. The asymmetry there is to the downside because you have an $800 fall versus a $200 stop to buy in and then try to buy, try to buy the breakout. And setting up your trades and setting up your portfolio to capture those asymmetries and kind of identify those asymmetries, I think is extremely, extremely important because that'll set you up to just be to just be a long-term winner where it's, okay, instead of buying here at 9,800, I'm willing to forego a three to 5% move. I'm willing to miss that profit in order to get a higher conviction trade. And I think that's really been hugely beneficial and it stopped me from making a lot of bad trades that kind of get like immediately smacked down on my face or I immediately lose on is being willing to give up your upside and willing to you know protect your downside because you realize that you can get a higher confidence trade, even though if the dollar PL of that trade will be less, your EV is going to be much better if you can get a get a higher conviction, higher conviction setup. And I think I think a lot of people, uh, you know, they when, when they first start out trading, they don't necessarily necessarily think like that it's like okay this is this is a trade setup that i see here but is there a higher confidence trade setup that i could construct if we move you know a couple hundred dollars in either direction and so i've been focusing on that a lot recently in my trading because i saw that here where we when we traded down from 62k to 58k it's like okay now that i'm sitting at this level yeah we could go higher but what's the point in buying here if I'm fairly confident that over 62K, a lot of new money is going to come by in because it's new all-time high. There's kind of no point to buy and there's a lot of downside asymmetry. So let me just de-risk. Let me de-risk my portfolio because I, I recognize that there's there's I, I'm willing to give up that upside in order to just have a better positive EV, out, EV outcome. And I'm willing to say, okay, I'm not going to buy here even though, I, even though I'm more bullish. Like at, at 58K, realistically, like, I was still bullish. I was like, oh, we might go, I'm 60% that we're going to go higher, 40% that we're going to go lower, but I'm actually going to put on a short trade because I think it's higher. It's like the higher asymmetries to the downside. Right. And so I think that's, that's one thing that you kind of have to fight is, is even if you're more bullish than you're bearish, if the, if the asymmetry is against you, you can take the opposite trade. Right. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Um, it's, it's something we also try to explain to our audience to some extent. We, we make the point that the, if you're bullish, the, the lowest entry isn't always the best entry, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a kind of classic example was the Bitcoin 6K breakdown, where it's like, well, look, we just lost like one of the best levels ever. You could try to buy 5.8, 5.5, 5.2, 5.1, you know, who knows where the downside is. Or you could just buy back above 6 
uh, and then and then you have a, a, a real fun time there. Like you don't know what's the downside in that case, right? But your upside, you've got like all the preceding years price action to go after. But you know that raises the question of looking for asymmetry, uh, looking for opportunity. Uh, where do you think that is in the current market, right? We had DeFi, for example, as one of our big narratives uh, come up like a lot, uh, and it's certainly slowed down now. I mean, the market doesn't seem hugely fond of Uni V3, or at least the news. Um, some pullbacks on the big caps in DeFi. Uh, NFTs aren't like easily tradable or accessible in many cases. There's no index to get long um, type of deal. So presently, we're, we're, you know, what, what are you looking at, I suppose, is the question. Man, it's kind of, it's, we're in a market right now that's really searching hard for a narrative. And I think that's just reflected in a lot of people's positionings right now where nobody has super, super, super high conviction over the next, call it two to three months um, as to like where the asymmetry, asymmetry lies in the market. I think from my perspective on a shorter term horizon, what I'm seeing right now is I'm seeing a, just a lack of sellers in the large cap and mid cap DeFi market. But I'm not super, super convicted that we're entering into like another crazy move from DeFi because valuations are already pretty high. And so what you need is you need a decent amount of new capital to come into the space to move up your things like Uni. I mean, Uni's trading at a $30 billion valuation. You need a lot of capital to come in to move to move that higher. You need a lot of capital to move to, to move, you know, an $8 billion Ave higher. So right now, what I'm focusing on, two things that I think are my highest conviction ideas are, I think alternative layer ones are actually underpriced right now. And the reason is because a lot of them are not particularly usable other than BSC, but they're on the way to getting there, right? They're on the way to actually become usable. And if you look at Ethereum as a $200 billion asset, and you look at these other other layer ones that are priced somewhere between call it, you know, one million, uh, one billion to ten billion. Some some of them trading higher. I think that's like a great relative value trade, especially because I'm not super bullish on layer twos right now because of the wait times that are incorporated into, into layer twos. And I think that people are going to start looking towards things like BSC as an example that layer ones can can actually accrue a decent amount of activity on them. So I'm, I'm pretty bullish on layer ones. I'm definitely bullish on like KSM, which is launching their parachain soon and Solana, which seems to be getting a decent, decent amount of activity. And so I think there's just like a really great relative value trade there where you can say Ethereum is priced extremely high and BSC is generating similar, like almost similar levels of activity. And these other layer ones, I think the market will start to price them higher because people see the potential of them generating similar activity. And so I think that's, that's a good area to be in as well as general like mid cap DeFi, because I think that there's going to be like a huge, huge amount of experimentation right now. Nobody really, I, I don't think there's really any clear winners in DeFi right now. We're just super, super, super early. So I like betting on, you know, like mid cap DeFi that could potentially compete with large cap DeFi as a, rel as a relative value trade. So I'm looking at those two things right now. So do you think that in general, ETH, has kind of already topped this cycle or do you think like relative to bitcoin anyway or do you think there's there's more to come on that side of things uh, i think that ETH, ETH will trade with bitcoin um i'm uh i'm i'm probably a little bit more bearish eth than most people in this market just purely because i think that they they had a year ago it was kind of interesting everybody that was building on ETH a year ago had the sort of 
moral stance that if you built on another chain, that was bad. And you should build on Ethereum because that's good. And Ethereum is good and other chains are scams. And if you build on another chain, you're kind of a scammer. And that was just the base level understanding of, of the current crypto ecosystem is Ethereum is the place to be building. And that's really, really, really changed. And I think losing that moral, that moral stance was actually a big hit to the social value of Ethereum where now you have all these teams that are willing to go build another layer ones and they're willing to sacrifice decentralization for, you know, UI and UX and users having a good time using the platform. So I think that loss actually was, was a really, really, really big one for Ethereum, which is why I'm more bullish on layer ones now than I was 12 months ago, where that was, that was a big, that was a big part in people's decision-making. And I think you can't really understate the social impact of narratives in crypto that's that drives value. It drives like absolutely so much, so much value. It's just people's perceptions of things. And because Ethereum lost that perception of being the morally good place to build, I think that it's actually lost a decent amount of value. And I don't think the market has necessarily priced that in yet. And we'll see where layer twos come out. But basically until ZK rollups come out, which don't have any. So right, right now, all layer two solutions, the issue with them is that there's a wait period between withdrawing your asset to the main chain the solution to that currently are semi-centralized bridges between your layer twos and Ethereum, but then you're getting into the same scenario as other layer layer ones where they're also semi-centralized, so you're not really solving for the problem of decentralization. So really until ZK rollup comes out, which will have no wait time, and until that gets widely used, the Ethereum scaling issue is huge. And so as more people come into the ecosystem, I think more people are going to branch out to other layer ones that offer them a better a better user experience. So I don't think Ethereum is top from a price perspective, but I think it's close to topping from a narrative perspective. The way that I expect this to play out is EIP-1559 will go live. There'll be a reflexive move in Ethereum where Ethereum price will go up. People will attribute it to EIP-1559 and then Ethereum will have probably this like nuts rally. And then after that rally tops out, then we're really going to see other layer ones catch up to Ethereum a ton. And that probably plays out over the next like four to six months my opinion. And then after that, that's probably the cycle top for Ethereum. After that EIP 1559 narrative plays out. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting trade thesis. I think one thing that I really like about that relative play is that people always forget that you don't need Ethereum to be flippant to make a lot of money on the trade, right? As long as they can mm -hmm. capture like some fraction, some portion of um, Ethereum, be it by its network effects or the amount of economic activity, whatever. Like as long as it takes some, there's definitely a trade there. I think people miss out a lot on relative value trades when they think, oh, well, there's no way X can flip and Y because X is so good. Well, the point is it doesn't have to, right? As long as it can carve yep. some relative usage, uh, a specific use case or capture some portion of the economic activity like derivatives or whatever else, like that's enough to get a really good trade, in my opinion, at least. 100%. I mean, it's all narratives at the end of the day, right? Uh, so yeah. I think that, I think that if you, if you have something, if you have something priced at like 2 billion right now, a layer one, and you have Ethereum priced at 200 in people's minds, the, the buyers of this thing, they're, they're anchoring to Ethereum. So it's like, okay, maybe this thing will trade at a $6 billion valuation, which is a nice three X in this market. I will say that it's like kind of still, still kind of funny to me. I mean, 12, 12 months ago, all the trades had targets of like, 25 to 30%. And in this froth, it's like, oh, I'm not even going to look at a trade unless I can, unless I think I can get 100% out of this. Just out of zero. So, yeah. You know, it, you know it's, it's, it's just one of those things that you always have to keep in the back of your mind. It's like, 
Uh, one, one, one heuristic is when the going's good, you just work your ass off to get everything that you possibly can out of it. So in the bull market, you just work your absolute ass off, generate as much return as you can. And then in the bear market, you go take your vacation. Um, and that's, that's definitely, I think, a good approach to this market right now is we probably have, you know, anywhere from eight to 12 months of this left. So might as well, you know, work your ass off to try to capture it. Music to my ears. I, I very much agree with that. Uh, you've been very generous uh, with your time. I've certainly learned a lot and I'm sure our audience will appreciate your time as well. Do you have any final comments, you know, remarks, uh, bits of wisdom? Where can people find you? Maybe apply to Block Tower to work by your side. Um, anything you want to leave our audience with? Yeah, uh, we're hiring analysts. So feel free to DM me on Twitter at Avi Fellman. And I think one of the best things that you can do is show me your DGEN score on Atomic Blue or uh, anything that you've written on crypto. <laughs> awesome. I'll say that. Doc, any yeah, I appreciate I appreciate you guys having me on. This is, this is a fun combo. Oh, it's been a pleasure, mate. Thank you very much for your time. Don, any any final wisdom from you? Or for a change, no, not maybe? Really. <laughs> not really, no. But I appreciate you coming on. Definitely would love to have you back at some point. And... Uh... Yeah, I learned a lot. Thank you very much. Awesome. Yeah, this is awesome. That'll be all from us at Technical Roundup. A thank you to the show sponsor, Blockfolio. Donald, Avi, I hope you have a fantastic weekend, and we'll see you all next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye.